Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes to talk about a really interesting article that we've done a couple of podcasts on, and this is the final installment. Tim Keller has embarked on a project, and I'm glad that he has. Uh, I don't know how you would uh, talk about it, but basically it's the decline and renewal of the American church. And he's written four very thoughtful pieces on that subject uh, and and made some prescriptions. And he just recently came out with the fourth and final installment of that. And that's what we'd like to talk about are some of his concrete suggestions, some of his prescriptions for the renewal of the American church. But maybe the first thing to do is summarize where we've been to get to this point. Right. We've done a couple of episodes. I think we did one after part one and part two. This one will be a little bit of part three and mostly part four. And you can go back and listen to those episodes or you can just click through and get to the essays. They're pretty long essays. I wonder if they're going to take all four of these and make them into a little miniature book similar to his book, How to Win or How to Reach the West Again. But right. in the first part, it was all about decline. And and he split part one and part two, decline of the main lines in part one, decline of evangelicalism in part two. And the statistics really bear this out. I mean, you, you, you look at the American church and you say, the main lines have been bleeding out for half a century. I mean, just the crazy amount of decline in the numbers of the mainline denominations, which would be the Episcopalian Church, the PCUSA, United Churches of Christ, the uh, certain branches of the Methodist Church, certain branches of the Lutheran Church, their numbers are going down in free fall. Keller says, well, that's partly because their story is one of capitulation to the progressive mindset, the progressive ethics that have taken force in American culture over the last 50 years. So starting all the way back before that, even 100 years ago in the 20s, you had the fundamentalists, you had the modernists, right. you have people saying, we've got to be more in step with what people actually think and believe. Of course, at that time, it was over things like evolution, science, how to socially engineer a more just society. You get the social gospel. Now it's more over things like sexuality, race, progressive morality in the way we view victimhood, intersectionality. These mainline denominations have shrunk because being a progressive Christian and just being a progressive, there's no real add-on to continue to be a Christian if that's your mindset. So there's a pretty right. pretty solid critique. That's not the way we can renew. In the second part, he criticizes evangelicals who branched off and kind of descended from the fundamentalist part of that controversy a hundred years ago. This is the rise of the religious right. This is churches we think of as Baptists and Nazarenes and churches of Christ, holiness movement, uh, Bible churches, community churches, a lot of churches that are not in a main line who effectively believe in the personal responsibility of sharing your faith, who believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, these are evangelicals, low church denominations. And his his critique of the evangelicals or explanation for why evangelical churches are declining is has a couple of different points to it. The biggest and the most overarching point is evangelicals have also capitulated, but they've capitulated towards a political agenda. So 2016 is right. in the background of a lot of his comments and uh, not, not as much as, as – 
kind of the evangelical movement that we talked about in our deconstruction podcast. He's not he's not saying that uh, everybody who voted for Trump has has lost the faith. What he's saying is there's a group of people who have started to blend the Great Commission, the the heart of what the church is doing, with a particular set of political agendas and goals. And because of that, they are unable to reach especially young people and persuade people who don't already agree with them. And they're shrinking. Now, there's a, there's a couple other facets to this. The Southern Baptist Convention, for example, has lost a million people in, I think he says, in the last decade, uh, which is mm-hmm. really surprising. Some of that has to do with the way that many churches, not all, but many churches have handled things like sexual abuse race relations. There's people on both sides of these in every denomination, but you effectively have a cluster of issues that Keller identifies as a reason why evangelicalism is shrinking. Now, this has brought us to a crisis point, particularly among young people. They are the most unchurched group in the country. This is people under 35 years old. And the further you go down, the less people are likely to be Christians and the less likely they are to go to church, the less likely they are to believe anything remotely similar to what Christians believe. And and in the first paragraph, he gives a pretty nice summary of why he wants to talk about renewal. Um, Never have all the various branches of U.S. Christendom been so weak all at once. It's not just main lines, not just evangelicals, not just white churches, not just black churches. All of the churches in the U.S., uh, taken as a whole, are at a very weak point. And so what I like about Keller is he's not just throwing stones to build a platform. He's not just tearing down right. these individual groups. And you may totally agree with his analysis. But what I think we all agree on is what he says is the purpose of writing this, which is if that's the case, then we need renewal. And here's why we need it. And to kick off the article, he gives a couple of reasons. The church needs it, clearly. The culture needs it, and the culture needs it because, and I thought this was a really interesting point, the love of God requires it. And I wanted to start and and get your opinion on this point, because if we're going to take this fourth essay, which is what is the strategy for renewal? How could the American church be revitalized and be renewed? I think we have to start with this point. It's not just because of a nostalgic longing we have for churches and for people to you know, fill our churches and have the church be the center of the community. It's not just because uh, we are lamenting the fact that America no longer seems like the Christian culture that it may or may not have been. The, the answer for renewal is Christianity is true. That's the reason for renewal. And I think this colors everything we think about when we talk about renewal. We want renewal because we want to see people come to know God through his son, Jesus Christ, because that is actually the only way to be restored. We want to see renewal in the church because that means that more and more people are living like God designed them to live. And so he makes the point that, you know, renewal is not um, true because it's relevant. It's not just a social engineering project. It's relevant. Right. It's on our minds because it's true. I think that's probably the starting point for any conversation about renewal, but I don't take that point for granted. What, what do you think about that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I I think you can characterize, I agree with exactly the way he characterizes the progressive and the evangelical church. But here's another way to characterize this around the truth is one side of Christianity has really lost, I think we've lost a bit of an eschatological view of the gospel, what the gospel is really about. And so you see the rise of Christian moralism, 
which basically says the gospel can make your individual life better. And that's an attempt to appeal to our culture to radical individualism, expressive individualism, uh, basically saying, okay, everybody, you guys think everybody has their own truth. Well, let me just cut through that and say this, the gospel will make a better life for you. And we think of that as we call that moralism. And you do see Christian teachers doing that, trying to be relevant, but it really sidesteps the truth of the gospel. On the flip side, you have evangelicals rather than the liberals. You have evangelicals saying that the gospel is good for society and for our nation. And what jives most closely with the biblical way of doing it in America is Republican politics. And so if we can marry Republican politics and the gospel together, we can have a better functioning society. And so I I think those are both ways of taking the gospel and trying to apply it to either individuals or the society, but neither one of them really reflects the fundamental idea, and that is the gospel is true. It's not just utilitarian. It's true. And I think that's really uh, what uh, Keller's trying to say is if you take an eschatological view The point is not whether or not it makes your life better right now. The point, the appeal of the gospel is it's true and it reconciles you to God for eternity. Some of the side benefits are cultural. Some of the side benefits are individual. But I think we put the cart before the horse a little bit. So that's just my two cents worth. What do you think? Yeah, I I would totally agree with that. And and in a little bit, because we're going to follow roughly the flow of this article, I want to come back to this point because I want to talk about the perceptions of the shortcomings on the left and the right and the way that a lot of people have tried to approach this, which is basically a, you know, if you're going to punch left, you got to punch right as well. And I think Keller makes some really interesting points about we're really not as concerned about being fair to both sides, you know, because I know we'll have people listening and they're like, well, I totally disagree with the problem as you described it on whatever side, on the right, probably. Uh, and and I'm sympathetic to that. I, I do think in this I do think in this essay there are a few points where I'm like I don't, I don't know if I really followed that critique. But I think the starting place though is where we can all get on board and say we do want renewal, and we don't just want renewal because it proves that we're right and somebody else is wrong, like the political gamesmanship we see so often. We want renewal because we want to see people come to know Christ, and we want to see people's lives redeemed and. And because we believe it is true and it is overarching. Um, and I think one of the problems in the mainline churches, especially, but one of the problems in the ethos of Christianity in America over the last 50 years is we believe it's true for us. But if we really stepped back and looked at ourselves, we would quickly conclude that we don't really believe that what we believe is true. We believe it may be locally true for us. It's advantageous. It's a good choice among the other options. But like you said, we don't have the eschatological conviction that there is one God. He sent his son. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And whoever doesn't will have eternal destruction away from him. And we have been given the job to go and proclaim that message to the whole world. That really is the truth, not just the truth for Christians. And so we have to want renewal because this is God's plan for how the universe is going to go. Right. That uh, right. the gospel is going to go to the edge of the earth. Everybody will 
know uh, at the end, every knee will bow, it says in Philippians 2. And we also know that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. And we can argue, and uh, you can go back to our Revelation podcast about when and exactly how this is going to happen. But we all have our Mm -hmm. eyes set on the fact that we have been given the job of proclaiming the gospel across the whole earth. And that's what renewal really is, is uh, seeing more people come to know that. So Keller moves from this introductory point to say, what would revival even look like? What would renewal even look like in the church? And uh, there's a long list of things. I think he gives maybe 16 things that that uh, would encompass this. And so we're just going to touch on a couple of them. It's particularly at the end of this list, there are three that I think are are especially prescient for the people listening, for our thoughts and uh, the way that we're doing ministry. But in in the beginning, he talks about neighborhoods filled with active, growing churches, local Christian groups who know each other, who go to church together. They are surrounding each other in community, filled with home fellowship groups. In fact, I think he uses the word honeycombed as a verb, which I thought was really Uh interesting and a great kind of imaginative word. Every U.S. community honeycombed with home fellowship groups and house churches that build up the Christians within them, welcoming nonbelievers and serving their neighbors. This is an incredible vision of what it would look like to have renewal on the local level. The number of Orthodox Christians growing, true justice, diversity, inclusion. This is an area where Keller, I think, probably will get some feedback from different groups, which we can talk about later. But biblically defined, he wants to see a representative group of people. If you live in a neighborhood that is racially diverse, you should have a racially diverse church. You should have people from every walk of life coming to be a part of what God is doing. I think that's what, I think that's what he means, but sometimes he uses some terms that sound kind of buzzwordish with Mm -hmm. uh, all, all the language tricks that we have in our culture right now. And then a translation of the gospel into culture arts, into the academy, into positions of influence, into the workplace, all of life being affected by the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And that leads me to the last three, which I think are probably the most countercultural in several different facets, but I think it's also the thing that we probably think about the most. And I I phrase these all as a counterculture, a sexual counterculture, a power counterculture, and a truth counterculture. And these are the areas where there's the most friction in our culture, but I also think it's the place, if we're going to have renewal, where we're going to see the most radical change in people. And so the first one, probably the most obvious, a sexual counterculture. If you had a renewal in the church, you would have things really change in the sexual landscape of the United States. And I, I don't think there's any argument about that. It's it's the hot button issue in almost every denomination right now. It's a hot button issue in almost every church. It's a hot button issue in almost every family right now if you're trying to mm-hmm. live as a Christian. So what would renewal look like on that front? This this point really struck me. Same here. He defines this a little more broadly than you might think. Uh, he does deal with the uh, alternate alternative sexual lifestyles. He says the Christian community is one in which sexuality is not a consumer good on a conducted on a selfish basis, but it is part of a larger picture of a covenant. But he also talks about it's one that values marriages and families. 
It's one that lifts up and encourages singles, especially women, for emotional safety, a place that pursues true romantic relationships, not the shallow cultural romantic relationships. And one of my favorites, it's a community in which Christian men and women who describe themselves as attracted to the same sex, but who wish to live according to the biblical vision and ethic for sex are nurtured and respected. And so it's really all-encompassing on the sexual uh, ethic of Christianity. And I'm I'm all in on that. I, I My prescription would be this. We need to get over playing a defensive game against our culture, is we just need to realize the fundamental fact we are a sexual counterculture, period, quit, apologizing, period. In other words, let's go make the cogent arguments that our view of sexuality leads to higher valuation of individuals, respect for people for who they are, not these cultural narratives that promise self-fulfillment but do not deliver it, whether that's the transgender teen or whether that is the uh, same-sex relationship. These are promises that don't fulfill the wholeness of God's covenant. And I think we need to be a little more sensitive, compassionate, but compassion doesn't mean that you can't tell the truth. And I feel like we've played a defensive game when we ought to just say, look, we actually have a completely different idea about sexuality, family, singles, and we'd like to tell you how wholesome and healthy and flourishing it is. I think it's time to go on the offensive. Now, don't read that as go beat people over the head, but simply go tell the biblical story of how beautiful the sexual ethic is. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that uh, by offensive, we mean just teaching what we actually believe without always right. having to react in one way or another to whatever the culture is doing. We should have, as a church and as as Christians, we should have known about marriage and gender and sexual sin and had a pretty good footing on it because we were teaching what the Bible says, not because we had to have year-long conversations or multi-year-long conversations as a denomination in light of whatever is being pressed upon us by the culture. It's, it, the, the reactivity of the church hasn't really done the church or the culture any favors. Disciplined, consistent, teaching what God has always said, how to live it out in a new situation— but what God has always said is really, really should be the goal. And if we do that, I do think there will be a sexual counterculture because what we believe is we are doing things the way God created us to do them. That doesn't mean it's going to be popular, but it does mean in the end, it's the way towards human flourishing, not human flourishing defined by uh, just anybody, human flourishing defined the way God defines it. But we believe that God created us in order to live life to the fullest if we obey his commands and if we're reunited with him. And we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that's clearly not happening. It's not happening outside the church, obviously, but it's not happening in the church. Uh, I'm reading a right. really, really eye-opening book right now. It's called After the Revolution, and it's and it's by a guy named Ayers. It's from Lexham Press. It's a fantastic book of sociology about the ethics of consent versus the ethics of covenant. So Christians believe in an ethic of covenant that all sexual activity takes place in a covenant union between a man and a woman. We live in a culture, though, that all sexual activity takes place basically under the banner of consent. And even that is proving to be a pretty flimsy standard. 
But he looks at the sociological data about where the culture has gone in the last 50 years and where the church has gone in the last 50 years and what the ethics of consent ultimately lead to. And one of his contentions that's probably the most discouraging is, especially in that group that's under 35, 80, 90 percent of people in that age group have bought in full fledged hook, line and sinker with the ethics of consent. They do not evaluate uh, the biblical teaching on sexuality through a biblical lens. They evaluate it through a lens uh, that they've inherited from the culture. And that's why you see so such huge rates of living together, premarital sex, homosexuality, gender confusion. I mean, all it's it's not the same as the outside culture, but it's very similar. Uh, and there's just a very small portion of Christians that are young who see sexuality the way the Christians always have. And I think that's a signal that uh, the church has not done a great job of being proactive, like you said, pl- playing a defensive, reactive, and sometimes kind of a complicit game with the culture of we'll slide here, we won't talk about this, we won't anger these people, which all reflects that we don't have a core conviction that what we say is actually for the common good. It's not just a set of arbitrary rules. It's the way that God has designed us. And we need to be telling that story. And if we did, it certainly would create a counterculture because things are not going to end well. That's the thing. Things are not going to end well in the sexual situation we find ourselves in in our culture. And as Christians, we have to have the foresight to know we've got to be telling a better story than the culture is. Oh, I agree. And I, I think that's our own fault. And I will say this, and I know it's, some people may disagree with me, but I think the attractional church movement of the last 40 or 50 years had the sincere and noble goal of trying to save the world. But what has effectively happened is that that generation lost their children. I think that's what these stats show to me, is we have lost the next generation of the church in our effort to save the rest of the world. And that's what happens, I think, when you leave a vacuum. I think our culture will fill it with a narrative that's unhealthy. And I think that's what we're seeing. Fortunately, we serve a great God, and there's no such thing as too late. But I do think if we want to see a change in sexuality, we'll have to get back to telling the story of what biblical sexuality looks like. Right. And I think as a transition into the next topic, and this is a little bit of an overlap, which is a a power counterculture, you know, somebody will be saying, and maybe they'll send us an email saying, you know, why are you picking on LGBTQ issues as like they're the only sexual sin? They're they're not, and I would openly admit they're not. They're, in in a lot of churches, they're probably not even the biggest issue. Uh, there are other issues, and we need to be vocal about that as well. That's why I think defining what the Bible says positively, here's what sex is meant for, as opposed to negatively, it's not that, is always a better way to do it. So you know, for right. for, for every um, thought that we have that okay, the 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 real problem we're thinking about is homosexuality or something like that. Well, what Keller does a great job of pointing out is, yeah, but sexual abuse has been one of the most recurring problems in right. evangelical churches over the last 50 years. Well, absolutely. that That's something we need to address as well. Uh, I love the point that he made about having the church be a place of emotional safety for singles. Your church should not feel like a meat market. It should not feel right. uh, like a place where people are resistant because they're single and they don't know that that's going to be the thing that defines them or that's going to be the thing that everybody notices about them or you know they're going to be constantly having to um fend off you know aggressive suitors i mean you don't want that either that has nothing to do with 
the sexual revolution has everything to do with a sexual culture that is lost and confused. And so, yeah, as a church, we're confronting all of these things. And I, I think we need to take a holistic vision of that. Like I said, that's kind of a good crossover to this power counterculture, selflessness, generosity, humility, the fruits of the spirit coming out, whether it's in positions of of real power, like at work or in the government or something like that, or if it's just in relationships, the way we conduct our relationships gives a picture of a vision for justice and kindness and gentleness that's consistent with the biblical picture. You know, Keller, I think because he's in New York, has a very sensitive eye to injustice, the power of nonprofits working together with churches to target things that are wrong in society, seeking the common good, having people who are about more than just electoral interests or personal power accumulation. If we start telling a better story about power and about how we use the things that have been given to us, what our goal is for our life, we will see a power counterculture that changes the workplace, changes society, changes our culture, changes these little neighborhoods that we find ourselves in, changes marriages. I think in a lot of marriages, it's really a power problem, a misunderstanding of power and identity that uh, people are working through. So a power counterculture would also emerge in a lot the same way as a sexual counterculture would emerge. I agree. I think as long as we're reactive on this one, I also am going to have the same advice, and that is let's go tell our story. I think when you're reacting on the sexual front, you look like you're just targeting someone. And as you pointed out, when you tell the biblical story, you're not targeting anyone, or you could just say we're targeting all of us to conform our lives to compassion for singles, uh, devoted marriages. I mean, it's a way broader issue. And I think on the power issue is also, instead of responding to the cultural mandates, whatever that may be, is if we just take power and use it in biblical ways. I think what you'd see us doing is focused more on educating children. I think you'd see a great focus on alleviating the, the true sources of poverty and not necessarily getting caught up in the paradigms of the culture, which I don't think have accurately diagnosed some of our key issues. And I think if we took our power and wielded it the way Jesus did toward the poor, toward the disadvantaged, toward the marginalized, we can make a real difference in our cities. Definitely. The third one, I think, is the one that we probably are the most passionate about, and a lot of our listeners will be too, because it's really central to what we're trying to do at So We Speak, which is a truth counterculture. We live in a world where it's nearly impossible to figure out what's true. Who, who can you trust? What information is valid? What narrative is valid? How do you know what you believe? And we want renewal because we want people to know what's true, what God has said is true, what the Bible teaches, the things that are true about the way God has created the world. And a truth counterculture would be one of both conviction and civility one of intelligent, and I don't mean your IQ, I mean, biblically speaking, somebody who knows the things that God has revealed, and debate. So we're not afraid of other ideas, and we're also not afraid of being able to handle them on the idea level. We don't have to do all ad hominem attacks. We don't have to put down all of our enemies, because we really believe the truth will win out. And a culture of renewal in the church would lead to a lot of solidifying what we believe how we explain it to other people. You know, one of the things Keller points out in this article is, he doesn't mention this point, but I think in the background is, we've had several big evangelistic pushes in American history, starting all the way back with the Great Awakenings. 
Then you had things like evangelism explosion. You have the four spiritual laws. We've had a lot of ways, the bridge illustration to explain the gospel that have been really effective. We're unfortunately at a time right now in American history where we don't have a means of evangelism that has shown itself to be very effective. There's not something right now, and this could be the move of God's spirit, but also it could just be our own inability to conceive of what's going to reach the next generation of people. We don't have a go-to way of sharing the gospel. And this would be part of that truth counterculture is we understand how to speak to people who don't believe. We understand how to talk to people about our faith, who don't have a faith, who didn't grow up in church, who don't know any of the Bible stories. How are we going to explain the gospel to them? Of course, Tim Keller's been doing that forever in New York City and has had a lot of success doing that by God's grace. But that truth counterculture would really change the way we live our faith out, our convictions, but also the way we talk about it. I agree. I think you make a great point. We actually have to live what we believe. And that puts the, our culture reads that as sincerity. They may disagree, but our culture still fundamentally respects people that live out what they believe. Keller also coined this term called uh, discipleship that is counter catechesis. A catechism is a statement of things that you believe. So I believe in God, the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ. And there are many catechisms. It's just statements of what you believe. Well, our culture has a catechism. There are things that our culture believes, and they catechize each other. They basically ask the questions, you know, what is the source of the problem in America? Well, it's racism, or it's this, or it's that. You know, what is the fundamental right of humanity, the right to express yourself and your feelings as much as you want? That's a catechism. And so what Keller is suggesting is that when we transmit our faith to one another, we don't just tell our children, what do we believe? We are very comfortable with allowing those things to subvert the baseline cultural stories. A great example is this. We believe that humanity is created in the image of God, and that is the basis for human worth. Our culture likes to value human worth, but has absolutely no story that leads to that. And in practice, you see it's a bit of a dog-eat-dog world. You get on Twitter, you'll see the lynch mobs you know, coming after people. And so his point is, is that let's not just say what we believe, let's talk about how it subverts what our culture's catechism is. And I think that's a great idea, is not just, I believe this, I believe this, therefore, I can uphold individual rights. I can uphold the uh, the unique value of every individual. So I like that idea of going a little bit further with our catechisms. Yeah, after this section of the essay, I think Keller circles back around to something we talked about at the beginning that I said we we would come back to. And he uses a great example here. It's from the Odyssey of mm-hmm. sailing between Scylla on one hand and Charybdis on the other, which are these two monsters. And he points out the phrase monsters on both sides. You have the 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 decline of the mainline churches for capitulation. You have the decline of evangelical churches for the failure to live up to what they believe, uh, for uh, joining in with some things that probably take take us off the main course of what we're supposed to be doing. And then you have people that, effectively say, well, we should have a middle way. 
we should not too conservative, not too liberal. You know, a little bit of grace, a little bit of truth is something you hear people say. Right. Well, Keller pushes back against this because, you know, Keller has been charged as being the middle way guy. And Keller's like, right. Look, I'm not the middle way guy. I'm the third way guy. So there's right. way one, there's way two, and then there's way three. Way three is not in between equally balanced fairness between conservatives and liberals or mainlines and evangelicals or Christians and non-Christians. No, it's just a whole different way of, of approaching these questions. And this is the key to renewal is not, okay, we'll take a little bit from the Republicans and a little bit from the Democrats, or we'll take a little bit from our progressive friends to satisfy them, but not enough to make our conservative friends angry. That's not the way. The way is to lead out of our convictional stance of what God says. And if that puts us in a place where we overlap in certain ways with a political party or with a social activist group, that's fine, but that's coincidental. It's You don't set right. out to say, I'll take a little bit from both of these places. What you do is you say, this is what we're supposed to be about in the world. Th these are the things that we care about. These are the things we're supposed to be doing. And if that means that we can partner with you in this area, fine. And if that means we're considered over here to you in this other area, that's fine. Because what's really driving us is a conviction of what God has said is true. And we will fall crosswise on some of our social lines when we do this, but that's not our goal. The goal is not a middle way. The goal is a third way, a totally new way. I think he's actually absolutely right about that. In my teaching, I've used the metaphor of we're actually playing a different game. You have a chess game going on here between uh, the left and the right, the liberals, conservatives. Label these camps however you want. And we're on this board and we're moving the pieces, but pretty quickly everybody realizes these guys are not playing the same game that we are playing. And I think that's what he's saying is it's not a matter of play a little on this side, play a little on that side. We have a completely different game. Here's a quote in that section, and this is sort of the game that we're playing. He says, the renewed church must be completely orthodox in its historic doctrine and then go apply it in a contemporary way. And a middle course means you have to dilute your doctrine on one side and you have to say no to certain social issues or whatever on the other side. And that's a losing game on both sides. If we can hold to the truth of historic Christian doctrine and then go play that game, if you will, in the middle of our culture. I think it'll turn out the way you said, Cole. Sometimes we'll be on one side or allied with certain groups, and other times we might be allied with different groups. But all the time, we just need to realize we're playing the game that God sent us here to play. Right. That's where we've we've recorded several podcasts on this, that uh, when, it, when it does come in, because some, sometimes you can get the sense, oh, we're going to be uh, we're going to put our heads in the stand when it comes to political or social issues. That's that's actually not the case. We see social and political issues as tactics in a much broader set of values and objectives. Uh, voting becomes that way. Political causes become that way. It's not ultimate for us. It's penultimate. It is a tactic in what we're trying to do. And so we don't see a total strategy of withdrawal, but we also don't see a total strategy of embrace because we're actually anchored in something completely different. So if, if with all this said, the last part of the article is about the how. How are we going to do this? And this is the part that's really interesting to think about. How would renewal like this happen? And there were a couple of these that struck me, and I know you had some that jumped out to you as well. The first mm -hmm. one, it seems like kind of an obvious one, but 
I think this is one that we need to spend more time thinking about and modifying the way that we do our churches. And that is church planting and renewal. So church planting was really, really big in the early 2000s. Got a lot of really healthy churches, a lot of really unhealthy churches, great organizations. Of course, Tim Keller's is called City to City. They planted hundreds of churches across the world. Acts 29, ARC. You had several other networks that have done a lot of planting. The Southern Baptists have planted a lot of churches. But we need to rethink about how we're going to have renewal through these church plants. And the thing that struck me that uh, Keller points out is if your goal is to have churches on the neighborhood level, so smaller churches, but more of them really relationally connected to people, really calling people to live out their faith together in community. The reason that's hard is twofold. Number one, you need a lot of mature leaders if you're going to do things that way. It's much easier to have a really big church with mature leaders at the helm affecting a lot of people. But what we're going to need in the future is many, many, many more mature Christian leaders having smaller ministries that are having a deeper impact on people directly. And I think that's that's practical in the one sense, and I think it's doctrinal in the other. I think Keller had a big church in New York. There's nothing wrong with big churches. I just think he sees the effects that smaller movements and smaller, more personal groups are having and says, that's something that we need to think about. That's something we need to pour into. The second thing is money. You got to have pipelines. You got to have training. You got to have groups that are supported. And so that's one thing that really big organizations can do well is train up leaders, pass on their culture, financially support them, get them up and going, and then propel them into the impact you want to see them have. I think if there's a renewal in the church over the next 10 years, one part of it will be many, many more people deciding, I'm going to be a pastor of a smaller church. I'm going to be bivocational. I'm going to grow and take on serious spiritual Mm -hmm. leadership. And I'm going to guide and shepherd these 25 people, these 150 people, these 500 people. And you're going to see many more people doing that. And it's going to be a little bit of a ground up instead of a top-down approach to ministry and church planting. I think that was an important point that he made. And he's not pro or anti-megachurch. He's simply pointing out a reality. And that is that to reach people in this environment, it's going to be less what I'd call big box retail and a little bit more neighbor to neighbor. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a change in our society and a change in our methods. You know, one that really struck me, Cole, is the Faith Work Network. And what he means by that, let me quote from the article. He says, equipping Christians for a faithful presence in their vocations, helping them serve the common good through integrating their faith with their work. This is probably the question I get asked most right now is, How do I deal with the pressure in the company that I work for to subscribe to various cultural narratives, whether it's sexual cultural narratives, whether it's uh, politically correct cultural narratives? But how can I uh, be a faithful presence in my workplace? And I feel like he's right on this, that we need to have a network, we need to have encouragement, and we need to equip our folks to have that faithful presence in the workplace. It's never been harder, uh, perhaps since the persecution of times past, to be a Christian in the public square than it is today. Mm-hmm. That I think that's going to be a pillar of renewal is people who go into the workplace 
every day as Christians and who figure out what that means to live as Christians in their workplace when there are a lot of pressures that uh, people are facing today that people have not experienced since times of persecution. And that's different than saying we are being physically persecuted, but we're certainly being socially persecuted. If you will toe the line of biblical Christianity, if you won't do certain things, Mm -hmm. won't say certain things, won't accommodate to certain things, you really will find yourself on the other side of some social persecution today. And so figuring out ways to integrate our faith and work, figuring out ways for Christians to start profitable companies sources of revenue, sources right. of uh, products that you know serve the common good is going to be really important. I got to the end of this article and my kind of closing thought, and uh, this is where Keller ends the article as well, was, okay, all this is great. And if it were easy, people would already be doing it. So what's it going to take for this to happen? And it seems kind of overwhelming to say, well, we need renewal nationwide. We need a bunch of people to rise up and do all these things. And he tells a little story of the Clapham sect, which had people like William Wilberforce in it, eventually brought down slavery in the British Empire. And uh, he talks about the courage that those people had to have and the networks they had and the personal friendships and intelligence that they all had. But beneath all of that, they had the inspired conviction from God that they were doing exactly what he had called them to do. And that's where renewal is ultimately going to come from. It won't come from a bunch of really smart people or a bunch of really shrewd business people or church planners. It's going to have to come from people who have spent enough time with God and they realize that God is calling them to be a part of the renewal project. And the part that I thought encapsulated this so well was there's a letter from John Wesley, who at this point is about to die, and William Wilberforce, who is young in his life at this point and is trying to eliminate the slave trade. And Wesley says to Wilberforce, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? And I thought, what a great way to end this. It's not all about strategy, and it's not all about systems and logistics and how creative we can be. It's about a call of God on our lives to be a specific piece of this renewal. And our job is really just to obey that call, uh, not to do anything bigger or smaller, to be courageous enough to answer the call of God on our life, to be a part of the renewal. And that's the only way it's going to happen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.